All right, let's open with a, a prayer. Father, we thank you we can approach you, that you have invited the Gentiles into your presence, and you've made a way for us to speak your name and to speak it with hope. And we ask that when we look at those who preceded us in the faith, we do so recognizing how frail we are like them and in need of your mercy and grace to guide us through our own difficulties in our own day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning and um, good, to, good to see you. And uh, I, this is the third in a, uh, a, a kind of a quick series that was put together on the uh, the big three Reformation fathers, uh, at least arguably of the, our tradition, of the Anglican tradition. There are many others. Um, the, um, the, the, the one we focus on today is Thomas Cramner. And a, a good bit to say about him. And before, prior to Cramner, we've done Luther and, and Calvin. And the, the point being, if, there was this, if there's just a simple sort of baseline that we're shooting for here is that Anglicanism is born out of the Reformation. It is born out of the Reformed um, movement. Uh, and it has its roots in Reformational theology. And the question I began the first class with and the question I, I put to you last week again, and I'll, I'll raise it again, this week is why, why are you a Protestant? Um, why are you a protester? What are you protesting? That's, that, that's what I'm asking. And, and all kinds of things, right? Taxes, whatever. But um, who, why are we considered theological Protestants? And what defines a theological Protestant? It's not uh, an everyday reflection. And maybe it shouldn't be, but it is something for reflection, especially when uh, we not only do we confess and profess certain things, but we practice them as well. We actually get dressed and walk into certain churches, you know, or we, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about it a certain way. Well, these are grounded in Protestantism. If you're in the Anglican tradition, this is your heritage, and it's worth revisiting. From Luther, we we get the, the great challenge to the sacramental theology of the church, the treasury of merit, the problem of the infusion of merit versus the imputation and the finished work of Christ that can then be wrought through the spirit and faith to, to, to be our own. Luther gives us the foundation of scripture and the primacy of faith and our understanding of theology. Calvin, the notes are still up here. Calvin develops this further. He has his own nuances he brings to it. But I think some important ones to remember for the Anglican tradition, which is where we're headed today, and is covenantal theology. There's a relationship between what God has done in Israel, what he's doing, what he has done in the church, and what he continues to do in the church that these, the unfolding of God's plan and promises stands in continuity as well as discontinuity. Calvin gives us 
greater insight into the relationship that we share with the law. There is definitely, uh, since Calvin's time, uh, both with Puritanism and other aspects of Protestant thought, there have been divergences on these questions, and I can't resolve them for you today or ever, but uh, I know they're there. I can show you what they are, and I can tell you what the dominant uh, trends have been in, in Anglican thought. But the law is not where Luther recognized rightly. The law drives us to grace when we recognize the awesomeness and just the fear and trembling that should come with, okay, I'm talking about God, uh, and I can't do the law. I just can't. Um, I, I think Calvin helps us see that at the same time, the law is not uh, alien to God. It helps us understand God's character better and it is uh, part of the meaning of Christ's work for us to recognize that. Uh, and again, there are divergences in the Calvinist tradition on this. Election, predestination, uh, under the decrees of God, that some things simply belong to him, and then sacramental theology. I think if you just take these basic premises and spend a few minutes thinking about them and looking at them, you have just the raw historical material to work with to see how it influence, influences Thomas Cramner and his, his associates for what becomes the English Reformation, what becomes the Anglican tradition, what becomes our inheritance if we still are holding to that position because we're not simply holding to a, a prayer book or a, a beautiful liturgy or a... Um, uh, you know, sort of a little more staid worship style or something like that. We're actually holding to certain theological principles by both professing and practicing in the Anglican communion. So, uh, that, that's a basic background. Today we turn to the third, uh, uh, the third figure in the series, Thomas Cramner, who I think is by far the most complicated and in, in some ways just he's so human and, and frail and and wrong sometimes in what he does. I just, I can't help but like him uh, because I, I, can, I can relate uh, because he's, he's just different from Calvin and, and Luther. And his circumstances were different. But his, uh, his, final, his final say, his final contribution is perhaps one of the most elegant and, um, and thoughtful reflections on what Protestant theology should be. Thomas Cramner was, I'll give you a quick bio, I'm, these aren't bio history classes, uh, but I, I want to turn to theology before our time's up, but born 1489, so he was born, <coughs> excuse me, at the, um, the, the tail end of what was known as the Wars of the Roses uh, of Lancaster in York. It was an awful tumultuous time in in England that I believe actually cast a pretty large shadow over Henry VIII and later developments in terms of how do you hold England together if you don't have a male heir kind of thing. So just to let you know, he's born at the tail end of that century. He uh, entered um, studies at, at Cambridge in 1503. He was there for, for quite a while, received the equivalent of a scholarship or a fellowship to go there. His dad was a big landowner but uh, only had so much land, somebody had to go into the priesthood 
it ended up being Thomas uh, who ended up, you know, that's what you're going to do. Um, he, so he entered his undergraduate studies at Cambridge. Uh, he would have been there at a time of enormous humanist ferment in terms of studies of ancient texts and languages and philology and such. Lost his scholarship for a while, his fellowship for a while. He, um, like, like Calvin, he entered college about 14 years old. Somewhere along the way, he fell in love with a barmaid who we all do. And uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, he fell in love and, and he married her. And I'm, I think he, I was trying to calculate this up. Yes, I think he's around 17, 18 years old. He's a young fellow. Fell in love with a local tavern there, a barmaid, and uh, he married her. And they pulled a scholarship and said, oh, you, know, you can't, you can't be a priest and study for all this and hang out and be hitched to the barmaid. She, um, she died, un- un- unfortunately, sadly for him. Um, we, we know little about it, but she died in childbirth, which wasn't uncommon. Uh, he then finished his course of study and became a teaching fellow, an ordained teaching fellow, university preacher, uh, minister, and you know, just resident theologian uh, there at Cambridge. And it's it's fair to point out that Cambridge, if there is a, a an island, an Anglo island, England kind of uh, anchor and and hotbed of Reformation, Reformed thought, it would have been Cambridge. Cam- Cambridge is where you would have found the most energy, probably because Desiderius uh, Erasmus, you recognize that name, Erasmus, he had come over from the Netherlands for a time and taught there, and he was a kind of a proto-reformer uh, in his own way. He ultimately did not leave the church and ended up butting heads with Luther, but his influence is there, his, his glow is there, right? <coughs> Cramner comes of age in this, but initially, and in what we can tell from what's called the marginalia, which are simply his notes from the books that survive, uh, he did not like Luther um, or Lutheran thought. He was he, he really recoiled at it um, in the early 1520s. Of course, it changes, and it changes. It, he changes fairly dramatically. Um, in the middle of all this, in the middle of Cramner's development, we have to understand something of the political climate because, frankly, to just look at Cramner is pretty boring. To, to look at Henry VIII is to watch everything you want out of a soap opera and, you know, a dirty movie or whatever else you want to watch. It's, it, it, it is the, the high drama and intrigue of court life, of um, power and sex and all the things that make us tune in every week, you know. And Henry, Henry VIII, uh, he married his uh, brother's wife after his brother's death, uh, Henry's father said, uh, his brother's name was Arnold, he said, you're going to take this wife because we've got to have continuity and we're going to get a child. I I do believe so much of this is related to the long echo of the Civil War, of the Wars of the Roses. England was not a stable country. It it hung in the balance constantly between the nobility and their interest and the monarchy's interest. I also think Henry VIII probably was a louse to some degree, but uh, it, there's a complica- there are complications there, I think, rather than just say he, 
every time he, he got an, an itch or an eye or for a, another lady, we, he killed one and grabbed another. I think he probably had a method to his lechery. Um, it, it, it may, and, and I don't want to hold him up as a model you know, for the youth group or anything like that, but um, it, was, um, it was Henry in the midst of his, he, he desperately needed a, a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, who happened to be the, uh, related to Charles V, uh, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. And it, he wanted the divorce. I, part of it was also the, 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 the power of, one, I think he, I think he took seriously, there's a, the, the curse in Leviticus that says if you, if you do lie with your brother's wife, you're, you know, you're going to be barren, there's going to be a problem here. I, I think there was some of that. I, I think Henry was genuinely, he had an eye for the ladies, but he also genuinely had deep fears about the kingdom and what, what lay ahead if he didn't have a male heir. And there was no precedent, of course, for a female heir at this time. There's about to be. Uh, so he wants the marriage annulled. He also is uh, looking for um, political patrons who can, and, and supporters who will maintain uh, his position. Well, it was, it was uh, by fortuitous chance, uh, Henry, some courtiers from Henry and Cramner, uh, they, were, they were lodging near Cambridge. They ran into Cramner and some other scholars, and, and they, they sort of tapped him. It was sort of his moment. He, he was pulled into uh, diplomatic service, is the best way to put it, kind of the diplomatic corps of Henry VIII. And he was sort of brought into the inner council as a theological advisor. What do we do here? Um, and at this, at this time, uh, Cramner said, and it was an interesting argument because it was the same argument Luther and the Lutherans were making in Germany. Let's, let's not go to the papacy with this. Let's go to the universities. Let, let's, let's, talk to the, let's talk to other scholars uh, who study theology and not defer to the authority of the Pope on this one. So um, this is in the air, this idea of the problem of papal authority and whether or not it should be appealed to um, it, it wasn't really heeded by Henry VIII. Um, Henry wants the papacy involved. And 1530, 1532, Henry commissions uh, Cramner as an ambassador to the continent. And this is an interesting moment because this, he goes to Spain for a time, but he also ends up traveling through Germany on his way down to Rome. And it was while he was in Germany, he probably, although he would have already been familiar with it, he really uh, encountered the Reformation up front. Indeed, he, married, he ended up marrying one of the um, daughters of Os uh, nieces of Osiander, who was a Lutheran theologian. But, he got Nuremberg in particular. He lodged up in Nuremberg for a while, and it was it was a pretty rough time to be in Nuremberg. And he saw, he saw firsthand what, and he talked with and learned. He there's good evidence he may have encountered Reformed thought as well from the Swiss area in, in southern Germany. So he does serve as an ambassador. He does remarry, 
It's also at this time, out of nowhere and really unexpected, Henry promotes him to Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, he, he was a junior uh, lieutenant. He, he, it was a weird appointment. It would have been a head-scratching kind of appointment. Like, why is this guy make, on the make so fast? And some of the traditionalists, and especially the more conservative Catholics in England, didn't like it at all. Um, it was uh, in 1533 then that as Archbishop of Canterbury, he famously granted Henry's divorce and declared the marriage invalid despite Rome's protest. And Anne Boleyn then, Catherine goes off and he marries, Henry marries Anne Boleyn who becomes the mother of Queen Elizabeth I. Okay, who obviously becomes important down the road. Uh, and to, to be careful here, yeah, Cranmer was a political creature. I mean, he was, he was working within the political currents of the time. He had a political mind. He had that kind of ability about him. But he was also a man, com I, I, we believe, and there's strong evidence, who is turning deeply toward reform, uh, reformational theology at this time. And he, along with Others, um, other important bishops and scholars were realizing this, you know, England's a different situation than Germany, than Switzerland, than the Netherlands. Um, we can't, you know, the way the Reformation is going to take place here is not going to happen like these other places. Indeed, like I, I said a moment ago, it teetered on a civil war all the time for, for between all these various interests. They played their cards close. But he wasn't absolutely a political creature to the point of licentiousness. He found out Henry, for instance, and Anne Boleyn had been um, sleeping together before their marriage, and, and Cramner came to him and said, you know, it's, it's null, it's void. You can't do that. Um, so, you, you, again, I, I like ambiguity sometimes, and this is one of those moments I can... I see a conflicted man who was trying to reconcile what he knew to be right with the political exigencies of the environment he found himself in. 1534, famously, uh, Cramner, along with other courtesans, uh, not courtesans, courtiers, they developed <laughs> the act, <laughs> maybe courtesans. <laughs> um, uh, in 1534, they, 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 the famous act of supremacy is declared, where England declares itself an independent church, that it is the, the Catholic Church of England will carry on through England and not through the authority of Rome. Okay? Um, it, it was essentially an act of what we might today call secession, you know, rebellion, uh, no, rebellion. And uh, it was a momentous occasion. England had always had a kind of thumbing their nose at Rome history going way back, but this was a this was a big one. And it was also at this moment that Cramner and others, uh, Ridley, Latimer, etc., uh, Somerset, um, Cromwell—not the later Cromwell, but the early Cromwell—they they thought, hey, this is our moment. I mean, this is it. We are going to bring reform through England. We're going to do it without violence. We're going to be able to pull the political machinery the way we want to pull it. None of the bombast of Luther, none of the 
the, the um, uh, uh, Aristotelian rigor of Calvin. It was, it was a political moment, right? And the, actually at this time, in 1536, 10 articles are put forward holding forth Protestant, mostly Lutheran principles. Uh, two Lutheran, famous Lutherans, uh, early on Melanchthon had visit, had corresponded with the leaders, church leaders and the king in England. And, and later in the 1540s and so, Martin Butcher, Busser, uh actually came to Cambridge for a while. So there were these deep, bright uh, Lutheran theologians who had been, who were, who were, they were corresponding, they were sending information back and forth. Ten articles are put forward, and Parliament begins the slow dissolve of the, famously, of the monasteries, the stripping of the altars, and taking them down, and taking the money from them as well. So it, 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 was, a, it was a dangerous and unique time. Um, 1538, it still looks good for the Reformers. The English Bible is put in every parish and is required. The Ten Articles are there. The English Bible's there. Everybody's happy, right? No, not at all. Obviously, you are still in Catholic England. There's no Church of England. There's no alternative. You're still in Catholic churches. And there are lots of loyal and faithful Catholics who said this is nonsense. I mean, they really feel this is treasonous and this is an imposition. You're making us do something we don't believe. So it, 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 it is uh, boiling. And there's a lot of heat going, going around England at this time. Uh, by 1539, the monasteries had been completely dissolved in England. However, Henry, influenced by Catholic advisors, began to turn and put the brakes on the Protestant moves. And he says, they say, no more. They take the ten articles and get rid of them, and they replace them with six Catholic articles. <laughs> okay, So we have a theological tug-of-war going on here with lots of consequences. So the idea is we see a more a stronger enforcement of a more Catholic theology. Uh, one of the issues at state was celibacy for priests. The Protestants are making the case this isn't biblical. There's no reason for this. Uh, they're, insi they're insisting it is. Uh, Cramner begins to see which way the wind's blowing. He actually put, sends his wife over to Germany at this time and says, don't come back right now. There were some nerves. And, and then another fascinating aspect, uh, when Henry, um, the, the, I would say the, the counter-Catholic moves dominated the early 1540s, and we, found, we find a kind of stagnant stagnant Protestant situation in England. It really wasn't clear. It looked like the reformers were allowed to go as far as they could. And then Henry dies. And a fascinating moment, uh, he actually called Cramner to uh, hold his hand at his death. And Cramner was holding his hand when he died. But Cramner refused last rites, and instead he recited the Protestant um, the basics of Protestant theology to him about justification by faith alone in God. And he did not perform Catholic last rites on the king. But Henry did die in 1547, and his son takes over. His son is nine years old 
okay? And it, it, this is Edward the Sixth, and most of us know that we're dealing with it. A nine-year-old doesn't need to be alone in a room for a long period of time, much less running a country, right? So, um, or a king, and this is true, of course, in England. They had the system of the Lord Protector, Somerset, who comes in. Well, this, again, the reformers have the advantage on the chessboard now. They've got a, a, a king and his minority. They've got, um, uh, and they've got, uh, they've got all the people in place they need to start pushing reform back into the churches, and that's precisely what they do. And it was at this, it was in this time period that a number of moves with Cramner largely as the architect begin to be made that look, that, that turn us to what we know today as the Church of England or the Anglican tradition. Priests are allowed to marry. Uh, the communion of both kinds of the cup and the, the bread are given to the laity. The, ma- the altars are, are, are replaced with the pulpit. Uh, no more Latin mass. Eng- the English vernacular now becomes the... Uh, the standard, and most significantly, most significantly, in 1549, the first edition of the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles, which were originally 42, is put forward. And here we we really see Cramner's skill um, in what he has given given us in terms of theology and a mode of worship that had never been articulated at any other country at this point in the Reformation. Let me finish his biography quickly and let's talk about the significance of him and his theology. Uh, 1552, the second prayer book is issued. um, But in 1553, uh, Edward dies of tuberculosis at 16 years old. He has TB and he, he passes. There's a secession crisis. Who's going to take the throne? Skipping the details. Mary, first child from Catherine, who was raised in Catholic as a Catholic, comes back to England and is invited back. The Protestants are suppressed. And Mary's reign begins. Cramner is in prison. He... Um, he sits in prison for almost three years. He was asked to recant and probably subjected to some pretty serious psychological torment. Um, and he eventually s- said he would. He would. They moved him from a prison to a, a, a separate, kind of nicer prison outside of Oxford. He had interactions with the Franciscan there. He, he was old. He was tired. He was a beaten man. He knew it, and he did. He, he agreed to re- submit and recant. And he, he was forced uh, on, in 1555, in October of 1555, to stand in the window to watch Ridley, Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer burned alive and a lot of judgments have been passed on old Cramner on this you know but um, I uh, well I know how it ended for us because 
even though he did recant in 1566, in January of 1566. Um, it speculated he thought he could continue the reforms. It speculated it might have he might have just broken, like similar to what we know, torture, um, mental, psychological torture. Regardless, uh, when you confess to be a heretic, and you, I mean, when you confess and you repent, and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, according to canon law, you're supposed to be exonerated. Um, he was not. Mary said, no, he's dying anyway. So they did, uh, they took him before uh, the cathedral there at Oxford and they, before his execution, now when he went through an execution, you had to sit through a sermon for several hours of how bad you were. And then you're, he was given the chance now to get up and publicly, he was supposed to, it had been written, he had written his recantation out, it was expected for him to get up and reinforce this publicly now to the people. And he got up and started talking, and at first people did not know what was going on. They they thought he was um, he they thought he was recanting, <laughs> but that's not what he was doing. He was recanting his recantation, and they started catching on, and the mumble started in the room, and they heard what he was saying, and he he said, I I. Uh, he condemned the Pope, he condemned the Catholic Church, he condemned the sacramental system, and he just went forward and said he was wrong. And that he and he was very he was a penitent in front of everyone for for being a broken man. And he said, I you know, I die a Protestant. I, I and by this time the crowd's rushing on him, the, the authorities are all rushing on him. And the, the image is that he almost, he kind of, they pushed him out the door almost to the pyre with him kind of running ahead of them just a little bit. And it was there, in some, some of you know this story, he famously said, he held up his hand and he said this was the hand with which he had betrayed Christ. And it, he wanted it to burn first. And, and uh, sure enough, that, that's what he did. He, they, you, had, you stripped your undergarments before you were burned, so they stripped him down to his basically like a nightshirt and such, and they, they, they fastened his body, but he took his hand and he stuck it in and let his entire hand burn in front of everyone before he would let them set the rest of him on fire. So that, that was Cramner's horrible end, some would say noble. Um, a conflicted man. Uh, a man who, who did play politics and paid for it in some ways, but a man who did give us two signature, two signatures, if not more, uh, of a legacy that I think we must embrace as Anglicans. I, I, I think it's critical we understand this, um, that he, he was deeply imbibed in Lutheran theology and the theology of the Reformation, he understood the great benefits of Calvinism and what the Reformed offered in terms, and as I pointed out last week, our relationship to the Old Testament, the sacraments, etc. Um, and for all the turmoil surrounding his life and what he lived through, he still bequeathed through this, this knowledge and this, this great mind, I, I think several things I would point out we need, we need to be grateful for. The first... And he gave us arguably the most biblical, 
the most theologically astute and the most beautifully written liturgy of the Reformation. Worship, public worship could not be just anything, and Cramner recognized that, that that was a liability of Protestantism. It could turn into whatever a personality wanted it to be. The liturgy, uh, through his learnedness, he was able to connect us with the past and, and give us a future, with, with give Protestantism a future in the English language. He articulated a Protestant pattern for maintaining ecclesiastical office. He gave us the ordinal. Here's how Protestants, Anglican Protestants, of course, should, should go about maintaining proper structures of authority. He, he brilliantly synthesized, brilliantly synthesized the foundational principles of Lutheran theology. Scripture first. Start there with your authority. Faith as the conduit to the anchor of Christ, to the work of Christ. Imputation of Christ's work that makes you just, not your effort. And he synthesized this magnificently with foundational Calvinistic thought. Old Testament is to be instructive for Protestants. We, it's not to be dismissed. We're not to return to the uh, Marcionite heresy, uh, where it's just the new all the time. Election and the decrees of God are actually edifying mysteries for the Christian. As I read last week, we have articles. Article 17 says this right out. And the sacraments are not magic, but they are signs and seals of the Christian faith. They're our identity communicated, and they have meaning through faith. Finally, Cramner gave us the 39 Articles of Religion. This is, this is a theological confession of what the Anglican Church believes Holy Scripture teaches. It is not Scripture, but it is a confession. Let me read this from John Howe, just to drive home the point I'm trying to make. A recent introductory volume on the Episcopal Church in the United States makes this extraordinary statement. Since there is no dogma, diversity is possible. Although the 39 articles are deemed important enough to be printed as a part of the book of common prayer, their subscription has not been required. They serve as possible guidance, but they have no authority. That was written in 1974 as an introduction to the Episcopal Church. Although the Church of England is still authoritative, right? The Church, I, I, was, actually, I was actually going to make the point, that's only the United States, not only in the Church of England, but in the global Anglican Church, that statement has never been made. And you have to subscribe to the 39 Articles. I say this to close and open us up for brief conversation. That's wrong. And that is a problem. The Anglican Church finds its theological identity in the Reformation. It can claim without hesitation or embarrassment that it is a church in continuity and agreement 
with the teaching of Luther, Calvin, and Cramner. Anglicanism is scriptural. It is confessional, and it is liturgical. The future of our communion depends upon how seriously we embrace and cultivate our Protestant confessional theological past. I think this is a lesson for our homes. I think it's most definitely a lesson for our seminaries and, of course, our churches and the way we practice. Luther, Calvin, and Cramner are important. They take us back to Scripture. They force us to wrestle with Scripture and how we understand that we get right with God. What I said the first day, they, they take this in a moment of crisis and articulate it with a clarity that only crisis can bring. Uh, I would urge we revisit them and take time to look again at what our heritage truly is as, as we press into the, the, the coming years and, and decades. So, let's open it up for discussion or questions in the last few minutes. He was. John Wycliffe is who Cain's talking about. Yep. Was he well before Cranmer's time? And and if not, did did they have any interaction? He was. um, Wycliffe was earlier. Um, The uh, he he promoted the first English translation of the Bible. And um, uh, but but he he was he and Jan Hus the. the Bohemian, or I don't know what part of that world. What is that? Austria now, something like that. One of the Slavs. They were the early. They were. They were a century. They had been condemned at the um, Council of Constance a century earlier, and it was uh, Wycliffe, um, who's after he was condemned, they dug his bones up and burned them again. They just. <laughs> They didn't have television. I mean, they didn't have reality television. This is what you did. I mean, you did. You know. Uh, Jason, I've always been a little confused about the way scripture was employed. Uh, This whole episode of Catherine of Aragon and the the idea that you know this was somehow adulterous. Yeah. When in fact the ancient Hebrew, Hebrew tradition was that you would. Uh, take on your dead brother's wife and yep. raise up children by her. In fact, yeah. Onan is cursed by God and he falls down dead specifically because he fails to do that. So, what, I mean, yeah. were, were they just kind of... You'd have made a great, great uh, lawyer for Henry. Were they just throwing scripture at each other to try to yes. see what would stick and yes. try to use something? Yes, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. A political... You know, we're pre-Jeffersonian, we're pre-Constitution, we're pre-modern here. Politics, yes, you're absolutely right. This moral dilemma, the political moral dilemma, had been sucked into a scriptural uh, church authority argument. And that's exactly what they were doing, is throwing it back and forth at each other, trying to out-reason one or the other on biblical grounds and canon law grounds on how we could get out of this marriage. On how I can get, you know, Henry, how I can get out of this marriage. That's exactly right. That's right. 
That's right. And, and, and the truth be told, there were arguments. You weren't going to win on those arguments. It, the only way it could come about or not come about was a political decision, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, he did. And was he was, a, you know? Yeah, yeah. Religious man. I just never. Wasley, well, Colonel Wasley, of course, he kind of gave Cramner a start. Um, he was he remained a conservative. When I say conservative at this time, I just mean Catholic, a traditionalist. Um, and yeah, once Cramner had authority, he didn't have much to do with Walsley, Walsley at all. He, he, yeah, he, he let him, he kind of let him hang out there into to his political fate for siding with the wrong side at that time. That's always made me yeah. have a hard time understanding. No, I think Cramner, I read one commentator on Cramner, and it was an interesting point. If you cringe at St. Peter, you're really going to cringe with Cramner. <laughs> you know, there's something just all too human about him. Um, and understandable for me at some level. Again, I'm not endorsing, but I'm weak. I, you know, I, I, I'm human. I, I, there's, there's a moment in a situation I'm not sure what I would do. If I'm honest, as much as I as I feel anchored and and want to do the right thing, there are certain things in life that present present themselves, and and I think Cramner shows us that. Did he ever feel any? He did. Uh, I, there is there's several accounts of, Aunt, but Anne Boleyn, for example, she those were trumped up charges of adultery, and adultery was treasonous. That's the, I mean, you, you could be executed for adultery because if you carried the wrong man's child, you had a you had an illegitimate illegitimate line to the throne. Cramner was involved in that to some degree, but he knew they were trumped up. And there there are there are this is just one example of him just sobbing and weeping the day of her execution, uh, just a, a deeply broken man about it. Um, isn't Anne Boleyn one of the uh, five women of the Reformation in Paul Saul's little book? I'd have to look. I, 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 think, I mean, she, I mean, she was clearly positive. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to look. I, I, think, I think so. We're over. Thank you. Go in peace. Love and serve the Lord. So.